Shalom. Good morning. This is Radio Shalom coming to you through Planet FM 104.6. Welcome back, Rabbi Otschul. Thank you very much, Darren. Well, it's good to be here with you again. Yeah, we couldn't finish uh, all the questions about Pesach at the last broadcast, so I invited the rabbi to come and continue. And I was puzzled as to where do they get all the thousands and thousands of lambs from? Who were the shepherds? Where were they from? Well, the Jews were shepherds. Though we were a shepherd nation. That was one of the reasons why, for example, in Egypt, the Egyptians settled the Jews up north. Because, of course, the Egyptians, they were farmers. They lived on the fertile silt of the Nile. The Nile would, um, would, would swallow every year... Um, uh, not, no, sorry, it would... It would Overflow. Yes, overflow <laughs> on the banks and bring with it silt from the African heartland and that silt was good to grow grain in. And now, the Egyptian, they had... Uh, their gods were effigies of animals, so they had a, a ram god, uh, the sun god was associated with a bull, um, they had birds and wolves Weird. and jackals. Mm. I mean, I've been to the graves uh, in, in, in Egypt, in, in the Valley of Kings, and yes, and especially to some of the temples. It was quite strange imagery, yes, yes, yes. Um, and therefore they didn't really like the Jews much because the Jews kept the animals they, they worshipped. And they said to the Jews, you can live up in the north, you know, nobody's going to see you up there, it's not you. <laughs> up, in, up in the flood delta, the Nile delta, there you can live with your flocks. So the Jews were, were, were shepherds. We were a shepherd mm. people, you know, a whole history. Uh, Jacob mm. and everybody else, everyone Moses was. was, was Moses was a shepherd, yeah. yes. So, so in that way, there were plenty of, of animals mm. around and there was plenty of animals to sacrifice for Pesach. Well, that was a goodly number for for the priests to uh, sacrifice at the at the uh, temple when there was one. What do you mean? Uh, well, if uh, you mentioned last week that well, something like two hundred thousand. Well, yes. I mean, it's interesting that, that there is the whole in, in all through that time from a couple of hundred years before Common Era till the year seventy. Uh, with huge numbers of sacrifice every year, and we have to imagine there were huge amount, huge numbers of people there at the temple grounds. You know, they would open the door, they would fill the um, men and women. Or yes, women men? would be in the in the front courtyard, mm. and men would be inside. But the thing about you know, as I, as I finished off saying last time, I think was that it was a family meal that was shared afterwards. Mm. A, a piece of it was given to the temple, and a certain part of the animal was sacrificed on the altar on the pyre to God uh, as a as a as a good smell um, <laughs> but uh, everything was enjoyed afterwards in a family setting and that's basically also what we do today um, I think what's interesting is in all that time there is not one or rather let me rephrase there's only one Pesach in which anybody got hurt and that is known as as the Pesach of the broken man, because an elderly gentleman fell and was uh, stepped upon by the masses. But that was the only recorded incident in history where anybody had gotten hurt. And, and there was room for quite a lot of people there. 
So they must have had tables to put the uh, no, as a matter, Well, what they did was they would gather in groups around the lamb that they wanted to offer. And then a Kohen would come to them and shech the animal and oh, collect and collect the blood that was that was part of the sacrifice in a vessel, and then he would walk back to the um, altar and sprinkle the blood on the altar as was described, and then he would come and on the walls of the inside of the temple there was this hook uh, and ring mechanism where they would put up the back legs of the animal and then they would flay it and then they would check it if it was kosher and check the insides and then of course they would cut off the parts that were for Hashem, mm-hmm. they would cut off the parts that were for the Kohanim and then they would give the rest mm-hmm. of the carcass to the family that had brought it and say, now go home and cook. Ah, I see so it, the Seder wasn't held in the courtyards of the... No. no and they took it home. No, no, no. And their Seder was not as the Seder that we know. Mm-hmm. Because the say that we know only came into being really after the year mm-hmm. seventeen when the temple was destroyed. Because they had the real korban pesach, you know. We we have the egg for the chagiga offering mm-hmm. for the for the festival mm-hmm. offering, and we have the shank bone for for the paschal mm-hmm. offering, and then we have the bitter herbs and all of those. But they would of course have had half a lamb, right? And they would have had a bull. And then they would eat matzah and they would have the bitter herbs and they might even have have, have uh, charoset, but the charoset would have been made from, from dates and nuts, and not from And apples. the wine as well. Well, of course they would have four cups of wine. Right. Well, um, I don't know whether they really had that in the time of the temple, but certainly after that they had four cups of wine. Because to us, a sacrifice is, you know, a very pagany thing and you said it stopped... Uh, when we no longer had the temple because there was nowhere which was prescribed yes. to to do no. the sacrifice. So, but was this Bashet or? Well, it's it's an in, if we follow the thoughts of the Rambam of, of uh, Rabbi Moshe and Maimon or the Maimonides, um, a love child has many names. Uh, <laughs> um, he says that when when Israel came out of Egypt, they were at the lowest possible spiritual level now had had God demanded of Israel that they would do three daily prayers they would probably have looked at Moses and said what is prayer what is work of the heart because all the people around them they were busy sacrificing stuff they sacrificed animals they sacrificed people they sacrificed uh, grains and fruits and I mean they even sacrificed their own children God forbid so what did God institute God created animal sacrifice as a tool to lift them up spiritually but he limited it very much not everybody could go around and cut the neck of an animal and say this is a sacrifice it would have to be somebody from a special group the Kohanim and you couldn't do it anywhere you wanted to should do it in the temple in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Now we know that sacrifices took place other places than just in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was the designated place for the sacrificial mm-hmm. cult. And there, and only then, you could only take kosher animals. You couldn't take whatever you wanted to. It had so to be. kosher was even then in those days, and when and of they took blood, a, they took the blood off. Yeah, 
Of course it was. And uh, they they bled the animal. Mm. They spread, sprinkled the, uh, on the corners mm. of the of the altar the blood, the sacri- blood of the sacrificial animals. And we have to understand that a sacrifice was not something that a family would go about and do every week. Oh, saying it's Thursday, I'll go and bring a sacrifice. You, you have to think that a lamb was a commodity, a, a steer, so much more. And that apart from those the the kidney fat and the and the flip of the liver mm. that was put on the altar uh, as a well scented smell to mm. the Almighty, the Cohen got a piece of meat, and the rest of the meat was enjoyed by the family. So when they would bring a sacrifice, it would be a family gathering. It would be a Friday night. They would have a, you know fantastic gathering, and they would eat it, uh, and they would be satisfied. Mm. Um, but then what happens? Comes the first exile, and of course the animal sacrifice stops. And in Babylon is where the foundation stone of today's ritual service in the synagogue is laid. Because all of a sudden, they could not perform the work of the hand, i.e. the worship through sacrifice. What did they do? Well, they instituted that prayer should take the place of the daily sacrifices. So, Is that the first introduction of... That is possible. I mean, we know that psalms were read mm. and sung by the Levites in the temple. And by David? No. David wrote psalms. Yeah, but he didn't sing them in the temple. No. Okay. <laughs> because he didn't build the temple. Because he'd mm. been a naughty boy. Right. But nevertheless, he wrote all the He best. wrote many of them. And That's true. Right. Many of them. Not all of them. Shlomo wrote some and Asaf mm. wrote some and... Uh, Korach, uh, Vnei Korach wrote some and so forth and so on. Um, so, but correct, the, the Tehillim were read in and sung by the choir of Levi'im in the temple. And that, of course, they were made part of the daily service also. Um, but the idea uh, of a daily service starts in the Babylonian exile. And now, um, then they came back. 70 years later, and all of a sudden they had sacrifice and they had prayers. Now, of course, when we spoke about they came out of Egypt, they were with the lowest possible level of spiritual impurity. They were down by the floor, you know. All of a sudden now they might have been up in the height of, of, of the table, you know. They were growing as a people. And that's where Rambam brings the idea that when the temple finally were taken away, that was when Israel was spiritually prepared to accept the idea of prayer. That's the next leap, if you like. That is indeed the next leap, yes. And that's how it all ended there. Mm. So where did the prayers come from? Well, originally prayer was something that people would just do for the bottom of their heart. Prayer was, you know, you'd have the Shema Israel... And exactly, people would know how to pray. They they talked to the Almighty. Their closeness with God. They were woven into to the elements and felt God in their lives uh, ever so firmly. But of course, as as the the temple was destroyed and the people was displaced and everything else, they were scattered. They got further and further away. Well, the rabbis decided that there should be a roadmap, a formula. For prayer, and that of course gave birth to the Shamona Esrei or the, the Amidah. Who turned into the rabbis? 
Well, who turned into? Well, the elders turned into the rabbis. The, the, the teachers, the leaders, rabbis were there from the Babylonian exile. What happened in Babylon was that there was a leader called the Exilarch. He was um, basically or the Reishke Ulta, the head of the Gullus. Um, he was the head of the Babylonian Jewry. And he was highly, highly uh, venerated by everybody. Uh, you know, there are stories written about how he would, would walk down the street and, and the Gentiles would stand up for him and, and salute him because he was a highly venerated person. Uh, the rabbis possibly come into being from somewhere around the f- 5th century before Common Era as teachers because what happened just before the temple was destroyed that we spoke about last time was Yoshia that found this Sefer Torah and realized how bad things had gone and how important it was to focus on Torah and to understand and learn and study. Um, so, yes. So, in, in the temple times, it was the Kohanim who were the leaders of the... In a religious way, yes, but, but in in after but they weren't the ones who turned into the rabbis. No, no, there so are, not there the, are, they were not the educators. No, they were not the educators. It's very important to remember that the, the Jewish priesthood, the Kohanim, they were distinguished for their service in the temple. And the Levites were their assistants, but the rabbis became. The clergy, but as such, a rabbi is nothing more than a teacher. A rabbi is not a priest. A rabbi is a spiritual guide. He's a teacher that will show you the way, the way that you should walk yourself and the way that you should learn about. And he should be an example. But he's not a Cohen. The Kohen still has special privileges. Mm-hmm. Today, even in our service, when we read from the Torah, the Kohen is called first. To remember that the Kohanim had that distinguished mm-hmm. position in the temple, that they were special, that they did perform this work on behalf of the whole people, not just for their own benefit, but on behalf of the whole people. They I did. think that's one of the moments in the shul, is when the... Kohenim come and they cover there. Oh, that's for the blessing, for the Kohenite blessing, which yeah. we're going to do on Yom Tov. Yes, that's going to be soon. It's, it's quite a moving, spine-tingling bit. Yes. Because you forget who they are. Yes, you forget who they yeah. are. That's exactly it. And we have this in my family. What we do is we gather all the children under under the talit. Yeah. So I pull my talit on, uh, over my head and, and my kids come running up under <laughs> my, my talit and they stand there. And it's it's very nice. Uh, yes, it's a fantastic thing. So, when they're teachers, they have to have something to teach from. So, who writes and builds up that book of knowledge that they have to? Well, the oral Torah was given at Sinai. Yeah, but that's one. There's lots of other writings. No, but that's all the oral Torah. It all belongs to the oral Torah. It all belongs mm-hmm. to that verbal tradition which was passed from teacher to student. I mean, the the, the Pekavod has it in the beginning, Moshe kibel et Torah mi-Hashem b'Sinai. So God, uh, re, uh, sorry, Moshe received the Torah mm-hmm. at Sinai from Hashem. He then passed it on to Yeshua. Yeshua mm-hmm. passed it on to the elders. The elders passed it on to the prophets. And the prophets passed it on to the men of the great assembly. Now, the men of the great assembly were, of course, the rabbis. They were the Sanhedrin, the 120. 
wise persons who governed the people. And what happened to the prophets? I mean, they had a big role at one time. Yes, in the exile. Where are our prophets now? Oh, well... We've lost the power of prophecy. I think we've we've lost it to some extent because whether we want it or not, I think our lives and our lifestyle and our modern world has removed us further away from God and it's difficult to enter into that direct relationship. Is it impossible? Well, God has withdrawn his prophecy from the world. You know, it, it's not... Uh, maybe we are not worthy. Well, maybe we also had false prophets. Well, false prophets, the Torah warns us about it, and, and, and certainly during history there's been plenty of those, haven't there? No comment. <laughs> so maybe it'll come back one day. Well, when the Messiah comes, I'm sure we'll have the answers for all that. Should he tarry, you know, he'll be here probably hopefully next week. And that's also, you know, we talk about Pesach. Uh, the Jewish people through the last 2,000 years of, of exile have been a very, very um, sort of sneaking a little bit along the, the floorboards and trying to stay out of sight because there's been too much trouble on our way. But Erev Pesach has always been, and, and Leila said there, has been one of those nights where they mustered a little bit of courage. They opened the door and then they read out this verse, Shfoch et Amotcha, which basically says that ask God to to uh, spread his anger on those who do not accept you, who continues to persecute your people, uh, and that he should soon send you redemption. Lela said there is known as, as a Lel Shmira. It is, it's a night that has a special protection. And therefore they had the, the chutzpah on that night to open the door and read to the world, you know, on all of the days of the year we crawl along the floorboards, but on this night, this is the night of our redemption. This is a night where we went out of Egypt uh, with with a stretched arm. Um, so, how did the Haggadah come about? Who actually? Well, that that was that was much much later. But Eva, mm. I, I just finish this off. Mm. That's also why we say that Eliyahu Navi, uh, Elijah the prophet, is said mm. to arrive on Leila Sedel to herald the coming of the Messiah. And that's also why we go out and open the door to check whether he's there. And the kids every year, they come back and say, Abba, he wasn't there this year either. So, okay, we still poured a <laughs> cup of wine from him. He'll be here next year, don't worry. There's another uh, There's another <laughs> Seder tomorrow night, you know. it's you know With two Sedorim, uh, he's got two chances to come every year. <laughs> so he's got a lot of territory to cover. Well, he'll only come to one household. I thought he came to every household. Well, theoretically, he doesn't because he's only one man. So it's not like Santa. It's not like Santa Claus that climbs down every chimney, no, and does I don't know how many billion chimneys a night. I know. Eliyahu Navi is said to he will show up at one door, and that's why we all open our doors because it might be our door. Right. But he's not going to show up at all. And the silver goblet of wine is still there the next day. Yes, but the kids always come down to check if he's been drinking from it. And and, and, and Dad always got a hangover because he tried to empty the cup of Eliyahu. I thought you weren't allowed to drink it. Oh, but <clears throat> when when do you think the first Haggadah came? Well, who, who, who would it be? Or was it across the board? Um, 
I got to give you a pass on that one um, because I don't really remember the exact stories of it. But it's probably in the third or fourth century. No, 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 no. It's 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 a more or less universal um, celebration, but it's found in many different versions. So texts are added to. Um, we read excerpts from the Talmud. We read excerpts from the Bible. Uh, we, of course, read the Hallel prayers, uh, which is a great part of the Haggadah. And they were probably the first part of the of uh, the Pesach ritual was the reading of the Hallel, because we know Hallel was read in the Temple, uh, and those are the Psalms. Uh, so therefore that might have been the original part of it and we read a little bit before the meal and a little bit after the meal which sort of seems to tell us that that might have been what had surrounded the consumption of the Paschal offering was these these um, verses of prayer and praise and uh, yeah, praising God but the stories with the morals you know, that the stories with the morals, the four sons and all uh, of yeah. that, that comes later and that's possibly from Talmudic late Talmudic mm. times, so 5th, 6th century but it seems everybody had them yes, in different versions mm. uh, they had them in some kind of another yes I've noticed that in American uh, books the emphasis is on the freedom and there will be a picture of Liberty Bell oh. <laughs> and, well. and, and very much uh, from slavery because slavery is so distinct in their memories still well I mean that's that's part of our u- universal obligation as Jews is, is to well even though we have instituted religious slavery in our religion mm. uh, that's the Jewish law dictates that if you have a slave, you have to treat him better than yourself. And if you only have one mattress, you have to sleep on the floor, but your slave can sleep on the bed. Uh, so, so for Jews, having slaves is not an easy thing. Um, and and we all the time have to remember that we ourselves were slaves, and therefore we should fight for the rights of others. That was also one of the reasons why Jews were very uh, active in the American civil rights movement. Uh, Jews were very active in South Africa. Uh, in during the apartheid, yeah. So um, yeah, and it, it all stems from the. And I think it all stems <laughs> from the story of Passover, Passover that we have that we try to remember that we ourselves were slaves mm-hmm. and being slave and being oppressed is not a then, good thing for anybody. And then there's the songs. Uh, well, they they come much later, later, and they are found in so many different versions, especially the one about the little goat that my father right. bought for Tusasim, the, the little <laughs> kid. Yes, exactly, the kid. That is found in so many versions, mm-hmm. and it is said to stem from uh, folklore in certain countries in Germany. There is a German version. Uh, sung in Judeo-German not in Yiddish mm. but Judeo-German what's Judeo-German? well it's it's more like uh, uh, the German that you would know today but with uh, again with, with Jewish phrases in it whereas as Yiddish is the Hochdeutsch from the 12th century okay. and uh, to many Germans today just some Kauderwelsch uh, <laughs> basically non-language um, I have heard Chad Gadia sung in Judeo-Italian uh, because I spent many Pesachim with an mm-hmm. Italian family. Um, 
it's in Latino, it's in uh, Judeo-Grusian, it's in Persian. There, there are so many places that it's found in so many different times. And the same with the song Echad Mi Odea, Who Knows One. Um, that also is found in several versions. It's interesting that when you do the count, you know, one is Hashem, uh, two is the tablets, uh, three are... Uh, the fathers, four are the mothers, five are the books of Moses, six are the orders of the of the um, of the Mishnah, seven are uh, days of the week, days of the week, eight are the days of the Brit Milah, nine are the months of of um, pregnancy, pregnancy yeah. and so forth and so on. Um, in the in this in the Latino version, um, when you get down to two, for example, uh, they sing Due Moshe Iaron. So two are Moshe and Aaron yeah. instead of the tablets. And um, there are little varieties like that uh, all around the world. So Aaron was forgiven for being involved with the golden calf. Well, if, if, I don't know whether he was <laughs> forgiven, but he certainly, you know, he was trying to stale. He was trying to stale. said, okay, let's do something in the meantime. He was trying to hold them off, mm-hmm. but they wanted to do something really bad. So, yeah, at least he tried to buy some time. Oh, I thought he connived with them. Uh, yeah, I You're giving uh, him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, history as well, that he did try to stay. Mm-hmm. He did try to make suggestions to them that they should do something else. But at the end of it, he said, no, 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 you must all be insane. We all know what would have happened to mm-hmm. him. He would have been hanging at the end of a rope mm-hmm. from a tree or something else. You know, they would have shechted him. So, so he must have done something. He tried yeah. to massage them in the right direction. Okay, so he wasn't successful, but he got points for trying. Right. The um, I've always thought the Seder was really um, envisaged for children. It is, because, because it's, it's a teaching like a, event. It's a multimedia. Yes, you've got event. see, you've got feel. Yeah. And, and at our house... We, we dress up the table with the plagues and uh, mm-hmm. we've got ping pong balls flying around like <laughs> uh, like hail uh, plagues of Egypt and we've got this and that and it's 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 quite a spiel <laughs> and, and we prance around the table with the matzah like we're where are you going? I'm going out of Egypt what are you got on your shoulder? I've got matzah I've got to bring my, my lunchbox for goodness sake what are you talking about? <laughs> well um and and it's certainly something that you remember for the rest of your life is that you say when you were a, a child because that's what memories are made of. Absolutely. And it's one of those things that my kids, they love it every mm. year. They prepare in advance. They cut out little f- things and this and that and jumping frogs and what have <laughs> we. And um, the other thing is, is the Afikaman, where does that come from? Afikoman is, of course, the Paschal uh, the the sacrifice itself, and you're not allowed to eat anything afterwards. And it's said that we should have that taste, so that's the dessert for the night. Now, of course, where do you hide it? You hide you hide it somewhere where the kids can't find it because if they find it, they blackmail you and get all. I mean, so what's the point? There are many different ways of doing it. Um, there is the inclusive way where the kids have to look for little cards which has letters on it, and when they then have all the letters, they have to figure out the code to where to find it, and then they all get a present, for example. Um, there's the one where uh, the kids steal the Afrikoman, mm. and you have to negotiate to get it back. 
Uh, and then there's the one with, I mean, I always hide the Afikomen, mm. and it is rarely found. So I keep my money. You know. <laughs> I, I must admit that in the past it has cost me a couple of trips to, to uh, the equivalent of, of uh, Rainbow Hill or whatever it's <laughs> called um, out there. So it, it has on, on a rare occasion. Oh, we just got some chocolate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've got to be better at negotiating, Joan, you know. Well, I won't say chocolate because we didn't eat chocolate. It wasn't like... Um, Ooh. Yeah, it's not, I was absolutely shocked when I came here and found in the shul shop chocolates and all Coca-Colas and stuff that we certainly never, ever had when it was Pesach. We didn't. Well, don't worry, we won't have any Coca-Cola this year. <laughs> we don't get any of that's kosher for Passover, so... But, yes... Because they make a lot of stuff now, like pasta was out. Oh, golly. I mean, Pesach is supposed to remind us of being on the run. And if you're in Israel, you can get exactly the same food for Passover that you could get of the rest of the year. What's the point? That's what I thought. I mean, you've got to... The whole idea is that you have You've got to live modestly. You've got to understand that it's a different time. You've got to be able to feel it. It's, It's... That's it. Okay. So this is the time we feel intensely Jewish. And I do that every day. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So thank you, Rabbi, um, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to listen next Sunday at 9 a.m. And if you've list, have not listened to this show, you can listen again on www.planetaudio.org.nz forward slash Radio Shalom.